This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Seneca the Younger, orator, philosopher and playwright, was born in the Roman province of Hispania, modern Spain, around 4 BC, and was the first great Latin writer under the emperors after the fall of the Republic. He found a way to live and work under this new autocracy, in which he was exiled by one emperor, Caligula, only to be called back to tutor the future emperor, Nero. Later, as his advisor, it thought he curbed Nero's worst excesses. Seneca's plays depict the corruptions of absolute power and unchecked emotion, and they greatly influenced the revenge tragedies of Shakespeare's age, with body piled on body. His philosophy, Stoicism, shows a way to remain happy in the face of the worst misfortunes, an idea Seneca put to the test when Nero ordered that he kill himself. With me to discuss the life and works of Seneca are Mary Beard, Professor of Classics at the University of Cambridge, Catherine Edwards, Professor of Classics and Ancient History at Birkbeck, University of London, (coughs) and Alessandro Schisara, Professor of Classics at the University of Manchester. Catherine Edwards, what, if anything, do you know of Seneca's early life? Well, given how prolific Seneca's writings are, we know remarkably little about his early life. It's really um, reconstructed from from various stray comments in passing, really, until we get to the year 41, which is when he goes into exile. Uh, so he was he was born in, in Spain, came to Rome at a young age, it seems, um, studied rhetoric, studied philosophy, um, particularly Stoic philosophy, but also the philosophy of, of Sextius. And then um, we find him... Um, he, he embarks on a senatorial career, but then he ends up being sent into exile. I think you gave one and a half sentences to Spain. On the other hand, he had a father and mother, both of whom, especially the father, were influential. Could we just backtrack to that? Well, absolutely. His father, his father Seneca the Elder, was um, a distinguished orator himself and wrote treatises on rhetoric. They came from clearly a, a very a Roman family, although although Seneca was born in Spain. Um, his mother, too, seems to have come from a, a well-off background, although we don't know a great deal about her. He, when he's in exile... Wasn't her aunt some... Hadn't she some post in Egypt? Yes, his um, his mother's stepsister was married to the prefect of Egypt, and it seems that um, Seneca spent some time in Egypt um, and and travelled back with his aunt um, in a shipwreck in which her husband was uh, drowned. Can we just pause on his father's rhetoric and oratory? He he was famous enough to be called Seneca the Elder. He was highly thought of. How important was that skill, that discipline then? It was hugely important. I mean, that was really the the kind of educational discipline that um, young elite um, Roman males were all trained in, in in a kind of oratory that they would make use of if they were giving speeches in the Senate, in the law courts. But also oratory was a kind of entertainment as well. So, um, you know, you get these practice uh, speeches that are full of extraordinary crimes and that one has to then defend as, as a kind of an exercise. So all this is supposition until he's about 37, but even so, we may think if he had any relations with his father at all, the fact that his father's a great orator and the fact that Seneca liked to learn things might that he learned a lot of this from his father and this imbued him. And this was very important for later in life with Nero. Absolutely. You know, Seneca himself was known as a, an absolutely brilliant orator and, and that must be one of the reasons why Agrippina wanted him to be tutor to her son Nero because it was hugely important that Nero master the art of oratory. 
So he pops up in Rome, and what sort of Rome does he come into? Well, he's in Rome um, in his youth under the Emperor Tiberius, and um, and there's one very interesting moment in Seneca's letters written in, in his 60s when he's looking back to his youth and thinking about his... The, the, he, he got very into kind of slightly um, extreme... Uh, philosophical practices, so he, he adopted vegetarianism, and his father thought that was rather a dangerous thing to do in case he was associated with, a, with an exotic religious sect and then might be subject to... Uh, Tiber the Emperor Tiberius at the time was cracking down on uh, exotic religions. Yeah, but what was Rome like? We got What was the intellectual life in Rome like? What did he enter into? What he was doing? He's in his 30s as a clever man. He's exercising his cleverness in what way? Well, he's... Um, he, he does embark on a senatorial career, although we know remarkably little about his early career in the Senate. Uh, and he is known... I mean, Caligula criticises his oratorical style, so he's clearly very high profile. Um, and, and there's this sort of very... I mean, there is in some ways a lively intellectual life in Rome. Alessandro Schisaro. Seneca was a Stoic philosopher, noted to be the great Stoic philosopher, not drawing so much from the Greeks, the Greek, which, who, as it were, started it, 300 BC, but from, from the Roman tradition, let's say it started in about 50 BC, around there. What does that mean, Stoic philosopher, first of all, and how far did he take it? Stoic philosophy is a fairly broad church, in a way, in the sense that, um, as you said, it begins uh, in, in Greece 300 years or so before, before Seneca comes around, and it continues after Seneca. So we have Stoicism for at least 500 years in the Greek-Roman world, and you've got a lot of differences and nuances within it. There are, of course, some guiding principles, and they were remarkably... Uh, <clears throat> adapt to uh, to the Roman world and to the world in which Seneca was 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 becoming an important figure uh, the uh, the important thing to remember is that the pervading principle of of stoicism is that there is uh, the world is regulated by a logos or reason or god and this of course gives a unitary principle to that uh, to that view of the world but there are some very very interesting aspects of stoicism one is of course the insistence on personal virtue and that is something that seneca uh, really uh, emphasizes in his writing and you can see why that particular aspect will appeal to later generations including the christians what does he mean by virtue Virtue is leading your life. Virtue is very much a practical as well as a theoretical aspect of philosophy. Virtue is, 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 is using it in your daily life, in, in all aspects of your life. It's a living life according to reason. So according to this kind of pervading divine reason that dominates the world and the wise person, the wise man will follow this willingly will, will discern it and following it willingly instead of being dragged by fate which is ultimately going to happen anyway. So virtue is, is recognising this overarching reason uh, how dominating did, what, the world. How, how does he recognise it? What does he do to recognise it? The main element about that is uh, rational understanding of passions and checking of passions. Passions are, in their physical, uh, elemental uh, 
uh, <clears throat> dimension inevitable, but they are not actually passions, they are stimuli, they are sort of hints that one has to suppress and reason has to prevail. And if reason prevails, that leads to a virtuous life which is not dominated by passion and it is in accordance with reason and with, with logos, with the divine uh, breath of the world. Is the divine breath of the world got any connection with the, with the Greek gods, with Roman gods? With, well, it's too soon for the Christian god, but there's a Judaic god. What, where does this come from? Well, the, the the Christians, of course, like to think, of course, that this was somehow uh, proto-Christian, and uh, you know, the, the Dante puts him in limbo rather than in hell, because the notion that there is a unified. Uh, divine spirit is, of course, uh, a good precedent for Christian theology. Um, it does not conflict with uh, it does not conflict with traditional Roman religion, in the sense that they, 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 there is a sort in which uh, there is sort of way in which the two things can uh, coexist. That there is this pervading spirit that then finds uh, individual, as it were, application and manifestations. People would think, of, when, they, when the word stoic crops up, people yeah. would think this is bearing pain without complaining, yeah. taking on pleasure without be exulting too much, yeah. uh, putting up with the vicissitudes of life with a calm temperament, and the emotions he most is most keen on calming is the emotion of anger. He writes a anger, great essay yeah. on anger and so on. Um, but it, that's part of it, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. But he built that. We're talking about a stoicism which talks about nature, which talks about the cosmos, which talks about ethics, which talks about logic, the stoic logic. It becomes an enormous system. It's an enormous system, and, and as you say, it, 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 it uh, really deals with all aspects, like all sort of ancient philosophies at the same time. It deals with all aspects. It deals with physics. It is, uh, Seneca himself uh, writes one of his most interesting works, is Natural Questions, which is really a stoic understanding of the natural world, the natural phenomena. It deals very much with ethics. It deals with grammars. It deals with dialectics. It deals with, uh, of course, with ethics, first and foremost. So it's a, it's a very broad system. Mary Beard, so we have this man in Rome, uh, by that time, by the time he emerges into, into recognition on the, in, the, in, in the records, he is a Stoic, is, we assume, we have to assume, uh, I'm assuming, if you <laughs> demur, then demur away. Um, what, uh, what tone was there in Rome which made it markedly different or importantly different from the time that Rome had been a republic? Mm. Well, in some ways, there was a, what we call a revolution in Rome between the so-called free republic that we associate with men like Cicero, for example, um, when Rome was, in a, in a way, a quasi-democracy. Um, that is overthrown after the assassination of Caesar, um, and what you have is an autocratic, one-man rule of the emperor. And that's often called the Roman Revolution. Uh, we have to be a bit careful about how revolutionary it was. I mean, I think 98% of the population probably didn't notice much difference. Um, and it wasn't a revolution in the sense that the governing class changed in any way. Uh, the aristocracy was still the aristocracy. But there were really important changes for those people at the top in really the location of power and what political debate became to be about. So that whereas in the Free Republic you would essentially see 
public political decisions thrashed out openly in the Senate or the Forum under the Principate, which is how they would have termed, or how we term, really, uh, one-man rule, um, you get um, decision-making retreating to the private palace of the emperor. So when you're looking for Roman power in under the emperors, you don't look any longer to the Forum. You look to the palace. And what you start to talk about is what goes on behind those closed walls, who is influencing the emperor, and who, who's going to replace the emperor. So everything in at the, at the very top of Roman political society and political chat becomes focused on really a court culture. Who's in? Who's out? Who's got the emperor's ear? Who's going to succeed him? And that explains why you get, at that period, from the upper echelons of the elite, uh, quite a lot of vitriol about the emperor's slaves, the emperor's wives, um, because people are worried about who's close to him. And Seneca really comes into that world uh, by the time we see him as totally embedded in that court culture. So he's in the court culture, so by definition, therefore, he's a politician because of that. Was there any... The Augustus, the, great, the first emperor, although he didn't call himself emperor, was the principe, he, was the, he was very careful about what he called himself. He was very careful about the modest way, except he ruled everything all the time um, uh, in, in his way. Um, was it already deteriorating by the time? Uh, Roman writers would love to say that it was. I mean, Augustus um, brought off... a. You know, a kind of balancing act that we still don't understand, really, which in some ways preserved aspects of the free republic. The Senate still meets, the Senate still talks. You know, Seneca himself becomes a consul, um, just as he might have, in a way, um, 50 years earlier. Um, and the question is, how can that be sustained? How is that, uh, how is that rule and that balancing act carried on. Now, one of the real problems of, of Augustus's regime is that he, he never fixed a rule of succession, so you never know who's going to succeed the emperor. You know, if you were the eldest son of the emperor, that gave you a good chance of succeeding, but it wasn't sufficient. So you have a very perilous dynasty where it, at each moment the emperor dies or is killed, uh, you have real instability, the potential of instability. And the argument would go, if you if you know, if I was a crusty old Roman, what I would say, is that things did you know, they started really well and they got worse. And it's very Seneca's a very interesting character because in fact he lives through Every single one of that first dynasty. He's the first born, five emperors. He's yeah. born under Augustus, uh, and he meets his death under Nero. And if you if you're telling a gloomy story of that first dynasty, we call the Julio-Claudian dynasty, you say, look, um, it goes from good to bad, and Nero in that narrative represents back. You know, he comes to the throne as a teenager. You know, you've got a teenager running the known world. That can't be good. We're going to, we're going to spend rather more time than some people would like with a teenager in a few minutes' time. Right. Catherine, Catherine Edwards, he 
let's go back to the idea of the virtuous life. So he's in the middle of this maelstrom of spectacles, people being killed in the arena and gruesome executions, which the emperors loved and so on and so forth. He is talking about how to live this upright, virtuous life while he's at the court, while he's in the middle of it and writing plays which are represent, which are shown, which are grotesque in some ways. One of his most famous writings is his letters to Lucilius. What did that tell us about virtue, about him and about the time? Okay, well, the letters to Lucilius are one of his last works. They're written after he's fallen out with Nero, between 62, perhaps, and and 64. So we do need to bear that in mind. This is kind of, in a sense, he's protecting himself in some ways. So he's focusing on living a virtuous life, and he's talking about the unimportance of worldly power. Um, Remarkably, the letters have absolutely nothing to say about Nero, although Seneca spent all those years so close to him. They've got... Almost nothing to say about Rome as a place, except for kind of tangentially. They do reflect on things like going to the arena. So there's a one letter that talks about um, the, you know, how do we deal with situations where we're surrounded by a baying crowd, you know, who want to see blood, who want to see someone being slaughtered. And it's, uh, um, in a sense, uh, I suppose, trying to think through ways in which one can keep one's distance from the moral corruption of the people uh, in, it, in one's immediate vicinity. So mental strategies for focusing on um, um, stepping back from those, those kind of the, the swirling passions of, of Roman culture. In the scheme of thought, in the scheme of things then, where was Stoicism? There was Epicureanism as well. There was what, how big was it? Was it a sect? Was it a few? Was it a group of intellectuals in a little corner of the palace? What was it? Well, as Alessandro was saying earlier, Stoicism is a very broad church, really, in Rome, and probably the majority or, or, or a substantial minority of educated Romans would have taken Stoicism as very much part of, of, of how they saw themselves. Um, Stoicism is very much compatible with an ethic of public service, and um, one of the things that Seneca says in a, in a rather interesting work on, on the happy life or on the wealthy life, depending on how you want to translate De Vita Beata, uh, is, is that, you know, I should never forget that I'm born for the service of others. So it is, it is a philosophy that's compatible with being part of that court world up to a point. Mary? I, I think these letters make a, a kind of odd read, or they do for me, because um, in, in some ways, you know, there's, there's some sort of appalling bits of, you know, I think rather trite stoic philosophy in them. Um, but there are also these marvellous, you get marvellous vignettes. It's, it's where some of our best stories about um, Roman life come from and like your you know the story about the baying crowd how do you can you possibly how can you possibly go to the arena and you know you're surrounded by these people and then you think but Seneca's at the arena you know that that there's there's a kind of sense in which uh, his own implication in all this you know, it's, it's slightly discomforting, and don't you think? Well, I think that's right, but one of the things that's really interesting is the way in which he can turn around um, some of those kind of horrific um, rituals of Roman life and, and actually talk about, when he's talking about how, to, how do you think yourself... Uh, how, how do you do you live your stoic life? How do you how do you spur yourself on to be brave under difficult circumstances? And one of the models that he uses is the gladiator in the arena. And that's you know imagine yourself as a dying gladiator and think about you know if the gladiator can die bravely, then surely you can die bravely when you've got all that stoic philosophy behind you. Alessandro. But 
But he does try, I mean, he does make an attempt. As you said, the letters are a very le- late work and it is a bit retrospective in a way. So he's after, after, after he retired, he was retired. Uh, his real attempt to, to combine Stoic philosophy with reality as political power in Rome is, is on clemency, isn't it? Where he does try, actually, to uh, uphold to, to Nero and we never know since we don't know exactly the dating of it we don't know whether he's doing it sort of before or after some of his most uh, mischievous deeds the virtues of being stoic based as he was stoic influence ruler so he does try while he's in power to, to combine those two aspects the, 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 the absolute power as Mary was saying the absolute concentration on the figure of the emperor with stoic principles Do we learn anything from his dialogues which has a bearing on this? Yes, um, we do in a in, in a rather less direct way than than than, in, than than somehow we would we would like to. But it's quite clear that um, he he knows about this contradiction or what we like to call a contradiction, and that's part of the interest of of what he does, and a part also of why whatever the, the historical reasons why they're called dialogues, they are sort of dialogic to us. He's actually debating with himself. He, he's aware of the fact, indeed, in the very, in the very essay that, that uh, Catherine was mentioning a moment ago, he says, well, I know I'm not actually leading the life that I'm preaching, but I'm trying, I'm striving. And um, the same when, when he talks about the use you of mean time. He's reading a very rich, luxurious life, so we're told it is alleged. Um, and by Tacitus, it doesn't like him very much, just like many people very much. And at the same time, saying, be virtuous, eat meagerly. Yes, he says one should strive for that. It's the same thing he says about, uh, about Augustus. Augustus uh, always claimed that he wanted actually to step down and to have a, a more leisurely life away from the cares of power. But of course, you know, it was always tomorrow. Uh, yes, he, 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 he was enormously wealthy. Seneca, and uh, in fact, one of his great financial enterprises was lending money to this country. Can I can I have a little parenthesis here? We cannot miss out Caligula, really. I, I know you all want to get on a Nero, and I know Nero has his neatest tutor. That's the biggest evidence, the biggest patch of evidence we have for him. And this, but Caligula sentenced him to exile for eight years, and he went to Corsica for eight years. And he was brought back in a very puzzling way. But why was he sentenced in the first place? Does anybody know? It is said, some hanky-panky with one of the Emperor's sisters. Is there any evidence? No. No, really. right. No. Have you a, cl- a theory? <laughs> well, it's, it's very commonly the case that yeah. I mean, so many people get accused of adultery with female members of the imperial family. It's, it's just a thing to pick on, yeah. What yes. about you? Do you have a theory? I think it's, it's rather too close to one of the reasons it was alleged for Ovid's exile, not to be somehow influenced. This notion that it was always a little bit of a sin in the in, in the private uh, yeah. dealing with the emperor's family. It is family. fascinating that we've got Caligula, but, one of uh, the most lurid emperors, and he boots him out. He doesn't actually exile him. It's quite interesting. He, he sends him away to Corsica. Relegates him. He yeah. relegates him. Therefore, he gives got his money, he's got it, he can come back to his estates, and he does, obviously doesn't, but he does. You know, we don't know much about what he did Caligula. Caligula exiled him, and now let's get back to uh, Nero. He wrote a book for Nero, he's, a, he's, he's brought back, this is just as curious, sorry about this, listeners, but the, the evidence is so patchy, it almost becomes intriguing, because it's so Agrippina, for, which wife, the fourth wife of Claudia, a very strange, murderous person, brought him back to educate her son in Nero. Why did she do that? Heaven only knows, actually. Um, <laughs> I, this is full of information, this programme. How do people choose tutors for their children? It's a, a, a complicated question. I mean, I, I think that... Uh, I would try to take a wider view here, Melvin, in order to avoid these kind of these dodgy issues of fact and say, look, here we are in this court culture. 
you know, and in whatever the reasons of him going and coming, what we're seeing is that kind of jockeying for power. It's, it's, it's about friendship, about who's on whose side, who's going to be my supporter within this world in which everybody is very guarded, watching everybody else. And for whatever reason, Agrippina thinks that Seneca is going to stand by her and help her son. What you know, Her aim is to ease her natural son onto the throne uh, in, in favour of or before Claudius's natural son. So what she is doing is part of a succession strategy. Do you agree with that? I mean, in your notes, you talk about he's, he's useful because it's a, in an, essentially a provincial, not one of the noble Roman families, so he's not a natural conspirator. He's also, let's go back to what you were talking about, Catherine, his father, he's, let us assume he's a very fine orator, he's a very fine writer, and she's married to a, this stammering chap, Claudius, and she doesn't want her son to end up like that. She wants him to make great speeches, and he is the man to teach him. Is that something in that? It, we don't know, of course. That, well, that seems a very, um, very, that would seem an obvious reason to get Seneca back. Also, Seneca's going to be so massively in Agrippina's debt. He's going to be on her side. She's in a dangerous position at court because there are plenty of people. In Everyone's in a dangerous position well, at court. Well, her, so, you watch out for Agrippina, uh, don't you? I mean. Well, yeah, I mean, so she, you know, she, she's, she's brought Seneca back. Seneca really owes her a massive, you know, massive debt. And um, she's got Seneca teaching Nero, you know, bringing him, bringing him up to be, you know, an, uh, an eloquent orator. In fact, as it turns out, Nero's speech making is perhaps not all that brilliant. And Seneca ends up writing his speeches for him quite a lot, which perhaps gets him into slightly hot water later. What theory yeah. do you have, Alessandra, about him? And what impact, when he came back, he comes back, he starts being the tutor to Nero and we start to know at last something solid about him. What happened? He gets there. He seems to be a good tutor. Uh, does he? What does he? What does he teach him? Well, by, by tutor, I suppose Nero we have to take. Nero at that time. Yeah. Yeah, we have to take a rather yes, but he's but he's emperor for for lack of a better word. So we have to take a broad view of what it means to be a tutor. Basically, he's his chief political advisor. Um, something close in many ways to 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 a chief of staff or, or, or something close to that, and one of the first things he writes uh, uh, when, when after accession to the throne is is in fact a political treaty, and that's why I think you know quite apart from the fact that Seneca is by now a very successful. Uh, public intellectual, as where he's a writer, he probably has already written some of the tragedy, he's certainly written other works, he has written some of his dialogues, so he's clearly a very prominent figure in that very Roman intersection between letters and politics, in that very uh, fruitful mixture, uh, but also he's clearly a, a very important political guide. And, and Agrippina, in this, in this jockeying for power, which, uh, which uh, Mary and Catherine were talking about, must have thought that this was a very shrewd advisor. One of the big things that he did was to write a work, Clemency, advising Nero how to be a good emperor and be a good ruler. And this started with these mirror books, which went on and on, philosophers teaching kings and princes how to be better kings and princes. Clemency was an important factor in his relationship with Nero, or seems to be. What do you think, Mary? Yeah, and we imagine that at the very beginning of Nero's reign, and I think Alessandro is right to say by this stage, whatever Seneca was doing you know, with little boy Nero and his grammar earlier, uh, he's now something which is much more a combination of political advisor and minder. Honestly, he's a minder. Uh, and one of the things he appears to write for Nero, or claims to write for Nero, whether Nero ever read the blasted thing, who knows, uh, is a, a treatise um, 
on, on clemency, on mercy, de clementia. And it's an extraordinary piece of work in many ways, quite outside the realm of the reign of Nero, because it really is the only developed reflection on what it is to be an, a Roman emperor that survives. Yeah. Um, uh, and, but it, it has a very specific point, because it, it, assuming that it comes at the very beginning of Nero's reign, then what it is doing is giving Nero a kind of brand... Uh, it's not only reflecting on you know, how you might think of the history of mercy and how you should be a king and what it is to be a king. It's giving Nero a brand which is no bloodshed and be merciful. And it, the claim is, really, throughout this treatise, um, and later writers, of course, discuss this, that, that actually the ability to give mercy was both a good thing in itself... And it actually secured power. Because you were the only person who could give mercy. Uh, no. So you were in the driving seat but, the entire time and you uh, got praise for it. Yeah, that's right. Perfect. And um, mercy is one of those virtues which the more you think about it, the more people like us don't have because we can't have. You know, you can only have, you can only show the virtue of mercy if you have the capacity to chop someone's head off. Um, so mercy is always an autocratic virtue. And, but he does this, he, he bangs on about it. Interestingly, also, in the context of the Augustan balancing act between, are you, no, you're not a king, no, you're, um, you know, an emperor, you're first amongst equals, the, the basic tendency of the De Clementia is to say, this is kingship. This is it is naked kingship. We're not dealing with, you know, a nice kind of balance of power. He actually uses the word king. I mean, yeah. it's very, very interesting. That's a word that you know aroused horror in Romans of yeah. earlier generations. But Seneca, in talking to Nero, uses the word king as a positive term. Yeah. Can we come back to this stoic life, Alessandro, with you? Um, he is the great promoter of stoicism. He's the let's say he's one of the leaders, if not the leader at the time and subsequently of stoicism. And stoicism believes in not eating meat. I mean, there's austerity in stoicism. There's there's a repudiation of the the luxuries and appetites of the world. Yet we are told he and some of you've already said luxurious life at the court, so so forth. How did a how did he balance that? Do we know? And secondly, what did other people think of him? Did they think he was a total hypocrite? Well, this is a charge that has been levelled against him many times, uh, naturally enough. Um, again, one has to keep in mind that Stoicism uh, was, uh, uh, was new, new, more nuanced than, for instance, Epicureanism in this, in this respect. There is this notion Epicureanism of... Epicureanism is the, the, almost the competing philosophy. Of the it's time. indeed the competing philosophy. You could see why it would create more problems for a person like Seneca, in a way, uh, one of the fundamental tenets of Stoicism is that you do your part of a, of a cosmopolis, you're part of a universal uh, entity, of a world in its, in its broad sense. And uh, uh, you do have to spurn riches, but that doesn't mean necessarily you have to withdraw to private life. And just quickly, Epicureanism is, go for it. Well, Epicureanism is actually try to keep away from private life unless it's absolutely desperately necessary, but by and large, do not engage in public life. 
Seneca and the Stoics think actually you're perfectly right to engage in public life. It is part of your duty to the broader community of which you're part and uh, you should do it, of course, according to virtuous principles, but you should do it. And that's why Stoicism is so incredibly powerful and successful in a Roman context because it's a, re it's a recipe for reasoned engagement with the, with the real world. Mary. Alessandro is doing brilliantly in letting Seneca off the hook here <laughs> and doing brilliantly in making Stoicism. I thought that was we should do. He's trying to make Stoicism I think our listeners nice. haven't heard enough about Epicureanism, but we're going to have to move on. No, but... Actually, you can you can cavil all you like, and you can say that this is a very nuanced philosophy, etc., etc. But ultimately, Seneca is the rich man espousing a philosophy of poverty, and he doesn't get off the charge of hypocrisy for me. Absolutely. Well, he says he does say that you don't have to give away your riches. The point is not to be too attached to them, and it's the anxieties of attachment no, that he really counts against. Man. I mean, well, does, he, does, he, does he say to Nero, "Don't give me uh, five hundred thousand a year. I, I'm a stoic. Give this." to the poor and I'll keep doing it for nothing. Or does he say, thank you very much, I'll give it to good causes on my own? It's a, and I am not going to be moved by it. There's a, you can have that position. It is a, it is a tenable intellectual and, position. And, and it usually gets... Yeah, he probably loses everything at the end, doesn't he? So yes, he that does. kind of rescues him a bit. But if you were at that court, you'd take what you could while the going was good. I mean, if you had Nero bobbing around, you'd say, well, this is rainy day money, wouldn't you? But rich, <laughs> rich men have used the Senecan excuse ever after. Absolutely. Do you want to add to that? <laughs> well, I think... I, no, I've... just a second. I'd like to go back to What real evidence is there that he was an extraordinary rich man and first of all, and secondly, that he himself uh, was impaired, as it were. His stoicism was impaired by being such a rich man. He certainly was a very rich man. Um, some of the allegations about how he used his money are very much allegations from hostile sources. So Tacitus reports that the, all the sort of endless accusations of hypocrisy from Suilius, who also says that Seneca was very debauched, and I, I think a lot of that is, we, we can set but to one you side. You observe in your notes that Tacitus is unreliable and had it in for Seneca. And when, when Tacitus stopped advising Nero, Nero lost a sturdy and influential and importantly good friend. I think that's true, and it, we also see... Um, Seneca at the end of his life. Um, Tacitus is actually quite positive about Seneca at the end of his life and the bravery with which he meets death. And, and in that sense, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a strong message that his stoic training has prepared him very well to face you know, the downside of having been so close to Nero. When did... Mary do you want to come in on this? Can no, I move you on? ask your question. You ask your question. No, no, you, can, you, you make a comment. When did... When did Seneca know that his days at this court were numbered? Nero was having his own... When Nero's speeches were written by Seneca, he might, have, might, might or might not have delivered them well, but let us assume they were very coherent and important speeches. Would you agree, Alessandro? Do have we any of his speeches? So we're back and back. <laughs> as, as reported by Tacitus. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got these brilliant speeches. We don't know anything about and them. And they usually would to get Nero out of a nasty corner. You know, so the <laughs> right. first one he does is at the, uh, okay. at the funeral of Claudius. But we, we, you know? we haven't any records of any of them. No. And yet he wrote so much. I mean, the play after play, dialogue after dialogue. <laughs> the bits that we want to talk about in the theatre was right. We don't know how much effort he put into the ghostwriting. Uh, yeah. When did he know, how did he know, that at Nero's court, his days were numbered? Well, things 
start to go wrong in Nero's court pretty quickly. Um, uh, the the standard narrative is, heaven knows what Nero's side would be, was that Nero starts off pretty much under the control of Seneca and his friend, the prefect of the Praetorian Guard, Burrus, and also his mum, and gradually the teenager emancipates himself. Um, 59, he uh, has mum murdered, Agrippina is killed at Nero's orders, Seneca gives the slightly exculpating speech about that, um, then Burrus dies, and Nero's sex life gets rather more extravagant and uncontrolled uh, and his desires to do un-Roman things like appear on the stage playing musical instruments and singing become more pronounced. Uh, eventually, with Nero objecting in part, Seneca manages to retire, 62 AD. Then in 65 AD, there was a plot against Nero to with the aim of trying to replace him with uh, a man called Piso on the throne. The plot is discovered. It is believed, still remains uncertain, that Seneca was in some way complicit. And then we'll come to the, the, the consequence of that in one moment. There's one thing I want to get in, which is important. He's a- alive and working at the same time as St Paul and St Peter. He's later taken up, particularly, well, later on, but saying the 12th century particularly, began to take up heavily as a proto-Christian. He was really a Christian man because of what he said about virtue and because of his association. There are forged letters between him and St Paul and so on and so forth. How, does, how, how do you take that? Well, again, one could say uh, hard evidence is a bit uh, difficult to come by, but we do know that there is this rather extraordinary coincidence which must have uh, been very influential on early Christian thinkers. We do know that Paul gets to Rome uh, around 60. We don't know exactly for how long, but at least for a couple of years. And uh, although the evidence is rather less uh, uh, strong, we also know that Peter might have been there, and they're both persecuted, tradition wants them both persecuted by Nero. So there is this wonderful coincidence, this opportunity which is almost too too good to to miss, which uh, puts uh, Seneca, Paul and Peter in the same city uh, with the same emperor in the same years. Uh, These three great uh, historical and and, 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 uh, philosophical figures, at least two of them, and and, uh, that must have weighed very heavily on the the minds of the Christian fathers. The letters themselves are are a very early product. We we do know they're around by the 4th century. Uh, They're not really much to to, to look at, to be honest. Uh, They're fairly uh, sparse. On the other hand, it's quite clear that whoever wrote them wants to uh, really... uh, forge this link. Now we come to the death of Seneca, which became extremely famous. It sort of imitated, he deliberately imitated the great death of Socrates and there's a painting and it's a great, the death of Seneca and so on and so forth. Mary's taken us to that point. Uh, he's suspected of being in a plot. We're never going to be able to prove whether it was in the plot or not the plot. And Nero sends him a letter commanding him to take his own life, which he does. Can you tell us how regular that is? First of all, is that what Nero did, so to wash his hands off any suspicion that he murdered people? 
It was actually, yes, it had become uh, increasingly common under the emperors. We find lots of uh, instances under Tiberius as well, where where prominent individuals particularly are just given the instruction to take their own life. And and that does kind of then obfuscate the issue of agency. But we do have, we've got these soldiers turning up and they they tell Seneca to take his own life and he follows the orders. He, um, as you say, models his death on that of Socrates. It's a protracted death and he he meets it very calmly and bravely and and gives lots of uh, philosophical um, advice to his friends who are gathered about him. It's a, I mean, in a way, it's an almost theatrical death. It has to be said, and it, um, you know, Seneca himself had praised the younger Cato for his heroic suicide after the assassination of. Julius Caesar. Um, so he's he's situating himself. He's written a lot about how to face death bravely, and now he's he's doing it. Um, and Tastus gives us this slightly ambivalent dis- description. If I don't ask Mary Beard to come in, she's going to explode. Uh, I mean, <gasps> Catherine is so keen on this. I mean, a we might think of it as a suicide, but b basically it's an execution. It's an execution. Look, no hands execution. And then what the guy does is he does a celebrity death. Why do no, you call it celebrity? Because there he is. He's You're trying his... to demean it by calling uh, it celebrity. Yes, of course I am. Yes, That's you are, point. but why That's are you... Why are you... Why are you... Why are you demeaning it is the question I was asking. He is sitting there and he's... And he's actually thinking, right, I'm going to die in different roles now. I'm the, think, let, bring some hemlock in now so I can be like Socrates. And all the time, he's dictating. Now, happily, the last words don't survive. So he did not succeed in getting his last words into the public domain because Tacitus doesn't quote them because he says they're already being published. Tacitus sees, I think, the real... I mean, you called it theatrical, but it is, it is a showmanly death, mm. which I think has well, it captured the imagination of mm. artists ever well, after. He's getting his own back. But there you but go. It depends Tacitus how you look at it. Builds us for us, isn't it? It's really Tacitus who builds us for us. We, we say all these yes. things about Seneca did, Seneca wanted, Seneca wrote, but in fact, actually, it's Tacitus. Tacitus, who actually says that Seneca said, and so on and so forth. And so actually, I think that it's Tacitus uh, showing him up, which is actually more the point, really, than, than whatever Seneca, and he Seneca sure did or succeeds. didn't. He Catherine, sure you come in now. I'm not having this quarrelling going on. Well, you, having started it, getting on with it. Well, I think, I mean, you know, death is a hugely important theme in Seneca's own writing. And in a, in a sense, you know, this is the opportunity to show he's not a hypocrite. There have been all these accusations of hypocrisy uh, in, his, in his later writing. Writings. It's all, you know, so much about, you know, facing death bravely. Stoicism enables you to do that. And this is his chance to demonstrate the, the authenticity of his own philosophy. And you think he does? I'm just asking you. you uh, think... Yes, I do. I do. How did it resonate? <laughs> you can continue after. How does it resonate at the time? Because afterwards it resonated very much. This was a, a, and this was a magnificent death of a radical voice in paintings, in commentary, and so it went through the centuries and was very important. Although, right. Although we're just about finished, <laughs> time's run out. I'm, I'm sort of yes, I'm very sorry, obviously. And his influence on Shakespeare and his influence on the 12th century, we haven't got around to. There's plenty of time to get round to those other programmes. So meanwhile, thank you to Mary Beard, Catherine Edwards, and Alessandra Schisaro. Next week we'll be talking about the Kyber Belt, the outer fringes of the solar system, home to Pluto. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Where you go. What did we miss out? 
Well, there's so much to talk about with Seneca. I think part of the trouble is he is he is such a prolific writer. I mean, we've you know we haven't really said very much about his tragedies, and and those offer a very different take on some of the same issues in in a way. So something like the Thyestes, which is this incredibly gruesome tragedy of 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 kind of um, one brother getting his revenge on another by killing his children and uh, you know making his brother eat them, serving them up for dinner. Exactly, and then yes. and then telling him what he's done. Um, so, I mean, you could see how, you know, conflict between brothers could be a very hot topic in the court of Nero, where Nero uh, supposedly poisoned his stepbrother Britannicus. Um, it, the, the, and the, the kind of you know, incest in the, in the um, imperial family, all sorts of things that kind of resonate with these, with these tragedies. But, but the tragedies also convey the rather compelling force of, of evil in some ways. So there's, there's a part of us that kind of sympathises with Atreus, the tyrant, who's just, he's just, you know, really trying to think of what could be a worse revenge than, than anyone else has ever managed in the whole of history. I think we've missed out the funniest work in Latin literature oh, yes. that there is. And I learned how to pronounce it as well. Apocolokintosis. Now, That's right. is a work attributed to Seneca, and it there's still some doubt about whether it really is by him because it doesn't come down, you know, fully signed, as it were. Um, which I think uh, it is the only work of Latin literature that's ever made me laugh out loud rather than just smile slightly. Um, and it is a skit which he probably wrote very, very early in Nero's reign. It's a skit on the idea that the old Emperor Claudius is going to go to heaven, is going to become a god. And it's, it's extremely funny because, you you know, you follow old Claudius trying to get up to heaven and you know, to, to have his case heard by the Senate of the Gods. And you know, he does things like he meets Hercules, who come down to find out who's coming up, and Hercules speaks Greek. And Claudius is such a scholar. He said, oh, God, it's really good to find that there are people of some learning here in heaven. And he goes up to heaven and his case gets thrown out because, you know, although we think of Claudius as a rather nice kind of Robert Graves, Derek Jacobi kind of figure, um, sort of slightly cuddly, um, Claudius's reputation in antiquity was an absolute butcher. And so he gets sent back down and he, he ends up as a, a slave in a legal department in some place in the underworld. But it's why, for me, it's so wonderful is that it's very easy for us to think that the Romans were very odd because they somehow just took for granted the idea that emperors could become gods and that was you know that was just something you didn't bother about this skit really shows you that they too were thinking what is that process all about and Seneca if it's he um does it here extremely funnily well, I certainly would have um, uh, thought that one of the interesting things is what happened to Seneca over the past uh, 40 or 50 years. You know, Seneca had a terribly rough time of the 19th century and the early parts of the 20th century. And then somehow he was literally rediscovered in, in, in many ways. And one of the ways was, as Catherine was saying, was thanks to the tragedies. And it's very interesting to see how especially in this country, the poets and the writers who worked on Seneca, I'm thinking of Ted Hughes' translations in the 60s or Carol Church's translation in the 90s, rediscover a different Seneca, which is very different and very uh, far away from...
from the rather florid, pompous image that somehow he had gained in earlier times. And it's fantastic to see what uh, they find in him. They find this kind of blunt... Uh, swift, uh, uh, raw language that both in separate ways, both both Hughes and, and, and Churchill, for instance, admire and they're both surprised by it. And it's very interesting that um, this is, in a way, what we are rediscovering about Seneca now, that behind the facade of this very suave politician and behind all the contradiction of his stoicism and also behind some of the, uh, the difficulties of his Latin, there is actually a fantastic writer... And that shows also, of course, in the prose works. I mean, there is no other Latin writer. I mean, you say Apocalyptus is the only text that makes you laugh, and I agree with you, but there's also no text before Augustine, really, which has that kind of psychological uh, analysis, that kind of almost surgical dissection of emotions. And this is all through his words and his use of words. And it's, fun, it's, very, it's very exciting to see authors, yes, experimental writers, as it were, uh, discovering this in the tragedies and really presenting a Seneca which is still viable for us now. Catherine? Yes, I mean, and I think in terms of the, the um, you know, what Alessandro was saying about um, the, the kind of crossover between the, the, the tragedies and, and the letters, that the that kind of self-reflexivity of the letters is one of the things that, that people find most engaging about them now. This kind of a constant um, scrutiny of one's own emotions and behaviour. And, and, and this, I mean, I think... You know, you, you talked about um, you know Augustine in a sense. The way that Seneca talks about self, the self is a, is a big influence on um, particularly Latin Christian Indeed. writers like Augustine and, and Tertullian too. That they they really connect to Seneca in a way they don't to many other pagan writers. I mean, I still feel a bit torn. I mean, I I, I entirely take your point about um, you know particularly the tragedies, and I've said that I've enjoyed the Apocolic Intosis. I still feel there's a, a bit of the early 20th century in me which, you know, isn't quite as keen on these self-help manuals and what I think is rather kind of fuzzy in parts, stoicism. But I have been really interested in following a bit of the ups and downs of his fortune because, um, you know, one of the things we forget is that Seneca's Phaedra was, I think, the first... Staged, the yeah. first right. ancient play to be staged after antiquity in the late Indeed. 15th century. And you know, we think of the staging of great tragedy. Um, uh, and <clears throat> I was, when I was an undergraduate, I was taught that Seneca's plays were unactable. They were, they were so rhetorical and static. And yet, you know, back there in Italy in the late 15th century, it was Seneca's feature. That's what they went for, yeah. That's mm. what they went for. Mm. Well, also, uh, yeah, you might say it's fuzzy, but it's very interesting. Part of the popular dimension of Seneca's these days is that stoicism has become... Uh, it precisely perhaps because of its fuzziness, but there is stoic day, there is stoic week, there is the consolation of philosophy. There is this sense that somehow st uh, maxims of Seneca are still widely sold as little self-help manual. Well, and one can be you know, very sceptical about sort of the theoretical or psychological underpinning of it all, but it is a fact. They, they appeal to this notion that you can find a dimension of inner peace and calm and virtue, even in the kind of life we work. Yeah. Now, a lot of us kind of don't, don't bind to that. I don't. I prefer Thayestes any day to, <laughs> to, 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 his, to his maxim. But you can quite see that it is an appealing philosophy, perhaps not in such a different way from the way it would, would, could have looked to, well, to think, a Roman. I think that's right. And I think that one of the things that's, that comes across so strongly, particularly in the letters, is that sense of, of philosophy as practice 
as kind of something that you do every day and, and the kind of routines, the, the meditation on, um, you know, bad things that might happen to you and how you might cope with them, all those sorts of that sort of applied philosophy. And I think, you know, you know visualising difficult situations and, and kind of inuring yourself to them, all these sorts of techniques. And, I, um, you know, it's absolutely true that philosophy, that Stoke philosophy has, has acquired a, a new popularity recently. And it's also been a huge influence on things like cognitive behavioural therapy and the, the people, those who, who were at the start of, of cognitive behavioural therapy had read a lot of Seneca and Epic Teachers, very interestingly. <laughs> you two are with the zeitgeist No, no, no we're not. We're not I, I, I know you are. Not defending it. If you're with but, the zeitgeist, but, I mean, Mary's after you, but, I can tell but, you. But, but, for me... <laughs> There is nothing that will rescue Stoicism from being the rigid, fatalistic, narrow, in some ways very narrow doctrine that it is when you get to the real hardline Stoics. And the idea that somehow we can sugar the pill with a bit of self-help advice when you have basically, you know, one of a really nasty philosophy out. But is it? The, the producer's aching to get in, although the people listening to this are saying, why don't you go on forever, I, I suspect. Yeah, I, don't, I don't want to stop you, but uh, do you want tea or coffee? Or... Oh, really? Hemlock. With milk. Yeah. And for more podcasts on arts and ideas from the BBC, follow the link on our website to the best of BBC Radio 3's free-thinking programme.